You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. Welcome to Simulcast. This is the July Journal Club podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? Uh, I'm really good. It's nice to see you this morning. All right. Well, as per usual, we're going to go through our feature article of the month and then I've got four little snippets from the recent literature. But uh, Ben, why don't you take us through talking about medical students in our simulation workforce? Absolutely. So uh, this month, the paper was how to include medical students in your healthcare simulation centre workforce. It's a paper by Sandra Vigas, Doris Oestergaard and Peter Dickman uh, and was published in Advances in Simulation this year. And we're going to delve into the meat of this article in your podcast with uh, Sandra Vigas herself, Vic. So I'm just going to really summarise the article quite briefly compared to previous podcasts. So essentially this paper presents ideas about the integration of medical students into a simulation workforce based on the experiences of the Copenhagen Academy for Medical Education and Simulation. And the article covers the ethical recruitment of med students for work within the service, consideration of their salary and work conditions, as well as balancing their curricular obligations. It prescribes some broad ideas about how students with specific subspecialty goals may be drawn to different simulation methodologies and categorizes a useful table of potential roles for students into three main subheadings, which are the helper, such as an admin assistant or a someone who prepares the sim or an operator, and then teacher, such as a co-debriefer or content expert, and then other, which becomes a bit more research-based or focusing on curricular development. And the authors describe quite a longitudinal experience for the students at CAMES and a lovely synthesis of the way their parallel learning in healthcare and sim scaffolds effectively to increase their confidence in both. Um, So we're going to jump straight into the summary of the Journal Club discussion. Uh, We had a lovely small group this month, slightly marred by some IT challenges on our end. Um, And the discussion of the paper was really uniformly positive, particularly about the paper, but as well about people's personal experiences in engaging in healthcare simulation teams as med students. The prominent themes were... Uh, that engaging with simulation services empowered students to hold accountability for their own educational journeys, that there were benefits for the students but also for staff. And then lastly, things got a little um, more spicy when when, uh, we started talking about potential risks that needed to be considered and accounted for. Any thoughts on that, Vic, before I jump in? Yeah, well, I guess I'd sort of preface it by saying I was on that podcast with Sandra, the first author, and so I'll put the link into it because we really heard firsthand what it had been like for her as someone who started as a student in the simulation centre and is now obviously part of the faculty uh, in her in parallel with her role as an anaesthesia trainee. Uh, I thought the conversation was good. There were a couple of nice things said about our own program uh, that involves medical students. And I think Grace's warnings are very real ones. I think they probably are situated from the perspective of someone whose simulation centre is quite involved in assessment uh, and ours isn't. So those particular risks are probably relevant to some but not necessarily others. But I do think it does mean there are always some sort of boundary issues and I think they need to be carefully navigated, shall we say, about who's on what side of the uh, mirror. And we have that particular issue when our students who've done their simulation rotation 
then come back to do one of the rotations where they're participants in sim. And we used to tie ourselves in knots thinking, but they'll know the scenarios. And then we got over ourselves and and they reported that they found it just as much a useful experience if they knew the scenarios as if they didn't. So I think that just goes to our general thoughts that the more you can make things predictable enough, the better chance that people have to learn in simulation. Agreed. Um, so if we talk about the first point, which is that the students really felt that engaging with the simulation service empowered them to hold accountability for their own education. Um, Melissa Corley started the discussion uh, this month by exploring the impact a rotation had had on her experience as now a junior doctor. And she says, the culture and the role modeling from the simulation rotation enabled me to hit my rotations confident that learning and education and teaching were all on me, that all of these facets alongside uh, reflection are key to getting the most out of my day, my learning and my interactions. And in essence, it seemed that for Melissa, the impact was not necessarily on learning how to teach, but more importantly, how she would continue to learn as she transitioned from student to doctor. There were clearly benefits for students as well as staff. So much like uh, in the paper, Warwick uh, and Susan described the benefits to their service when engaging with med students. And Warwick described a group of med students uh, coming to his aid in rescuing a sim experience during a staff shortage, uh, while Susan described that in their faculty development courses, students got to explore both their identities as learners and educators as they contributed to design and feedback of new scenarios that they also participated in as representative learners. So they would help design uh, scenarios, but also participate as someone who is representative of the target audience for that particular sim. So they got sort of a, a double loop learning in that kind of way. And then uh, Grace came on and, and highlighted these potential risks, which she described as a potential dark side to some of these endeavours, particularly with regard to the fact that med students working for simulation faculty really can blur the line between educator and learner. And in doing this, Grace argues that there is potential risk secondary to that slight hierarchy shift, which is hard to sort of nut out and define. But, you know, she raises a number of hypotheticals, like how does one student feel about another one being involved in their assessment? How does one's behavior in the sim lab affect one's med school performance? And is there a performance advantage in being engaged with the educational faculty in a way others do not? And I thought those were, as, as you mentioned, Vic, quite um useful and important things to consider, particularly if you are engaged in assessment of performance in your sim lab as opposed to a purely educational experience. Yeah, for me, it just really goes back to thinking anything we do should have some principles, uh, not just, hey, that's a cool format, let's copy it. You need to think about how it applies in your specific context. Yeah, absolutely. And she also highlighted the importance of engaging some administrative uh, academic support when beginning these types of things so that you can potentially uh, predict and problem solve these problems before they happen, which I thought was a very sound, pragmatic advice. Yeah, who'd have thought we actually need policies and procedures? Yeah. <laughs> um, so moving on to our expert commentary, I was uh, very blessed to have Ms. Shristi Ranjith and Ms. Bryony Keats come and provide expert comment commentaries this month thanks to your suggestion Vic both are, I believe highly regarded participants of your program at Bond and both med students currently 
So Shristi is a final year medical student in the Doctor of Medicine program at Bond, and she's currently completing a seven-week elective in sim-based education. And Bryony describes herself as a final year Aboriginal medical student in the medicine program at Bond, and currently completing an elective rotation there as well. Uh, both Bryony and Shristi have provided us with a really authentic perspective on this paper given their current experiences. And Shristi highlights the clinical presentations she would not have experienced otherwise prior to starting work and the privilege of hearing the explicit externalized clinical reasoning that occurs during debriefing. She states, the makings of good teamwork can take years of experience to truly appreciate and understand. And by being involved in the debriefing of a number of ward-based simulations, I've been able to see these discussions firsthand. Something that ordinarily may have taken years for me to be a part of or even consider with as much importance. And Bryony highlights the fact that the impact of the rotation had on her own understanding of education. And she states, I know that my personal learning is benefited far more by being given autonomy and independence within the structure of a supportive and empowering work environment than by rote theoretical learning. I learn well by problem solving and engaging with peers and facilitators to find innovative solutions, as opposed to being asked a question that I'm required to answer like the definition from a textbook. This is the powerful nature of simulation-based education in shaping the learning framework for students like myself. And in many ways, I think Shristi and Bryony's responses echo strongly a quote from the paper that the experience results in this concept of a by-proxy reality and a first encounter with many situations. Uh, the authors describe seeing these situations played out in different ways by different teams can assist in fostering adaptive expertise by experiencing that there are many different solutions to a given problem and that there is more than one way to a successful outcome in any situation. So thank you to them both for the time and effort they put into this month's commentary. Really appreciate it. And uh, you can read them in our downloadable PDF summary attached to the website. I know. It would make a supervisor very proud to read what they've uh, done. They've done really but, well. uh, Yeah. And, but I think a couple of really key points there. One is just we were talking Bloom's taxonomy the other day, as you do. And uh, really, I think the highest uh, manifestation of learning is, of course, teaching and that's not a new concept, but I think they describe that. But the other thing also, that exposure through conversation to tacit elements of knowledge and learning and how they sit in a debrief room and as you described it really nicely, Ben, the externalised uh, clinical reasoning and thought processes that happens there which often students might not get the insight into if all they're doing is observing the behaviours. If only we could do that at the bedside, Dr. Brazel. <laughs> if only, Ben. Yeah. It would seem but like a good do. solution to that problem. Here's the clinical <laughs> event debriefing. We're going to get there. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> Shall we talk about some other papers? Yes, let's move on. So, of course, it's a bit tricky to do anything without talking about the pandemic, so I thought we might as well just dive right in. And the first paper I was going to highlight is one from the May Advances in Simulation by Engracia et al., and this is titled COVID-19 crisis, comma, safe reopening of simulation centres and the new normal, food for thought. Now, this is a debate article and uh, it's a very diverse author group, which I think is relevant 
people from both Novara and Rome in Italy, from Cardiff in the UK, from Boston, from Switzerland and from Spain. So uh, it's obviously a group who've collaborated on putting together this essentially expert opinion article. And the reason I included it is I think this is really relevant to people. You know, we had broadly the lockdowns uh, in the community that are now in many parts of the world, although not all in Australia, lifting. And for those involved in uh, simulation-based education, this is obviously very relevant. Uh, Obviously, there's also been a lot of publications right now, Ben, about simulation-based training actually supporting or preparing for the COVID response. But this isn't about this. This is actually about simulation facilities. Uh, I imagine you've had to make some adaptations yourself. What are you doing for uh, safe reopening, as it were? Uh, I guess it's a tricky tricky moment to ask that question in that um, I guess given our prevalence in our pediatric population in Queensland which as of last week was zero uh, we had started to make some uh, early moves to move much more closer to what was normal with confidence and then we're reassessing that now that there is the potential uh, start of some community transmission so uh, our institutional response has been to slam shut uh, all unnecessary non-mandatory education at the moment and we'll see how that evolves in the next week or two depending on how public health testing goes. Yeah, and I think that's why this paper is good because I think we are going to have to come up with some kind of an approach uh, given that this could be so-called the new normal for a while and uh, slamming shut over time is probably not an option if it's going to be for a long, long time. Uh, anyway, the, the the paper provides us 10 what they call focus points, and I'm, I'm going to go through them very briefly because I think people probably want to know what the content is. I don't think any of them are surprising, but it's nice to see them set out. So the first is to establish a task force, and I think that's a smart idea. Someone needs to keep an eye on what are the rules, what are the regulations more broadly in the community, and how then do we adapt that to our local facilities. Uh, the second one is obviously related to space, uh, and I think we've seen lots of that in bars, restaurants and in the community and I guess it's about paralleling that for our simulation areas, just having signs up uh, about this room can accommodate a certain number, having floor markings, thinking about how people enter and exit rooms so that they minimise the um, uh, interactions between people. Uh, Their third one is to think about the conditions of access to a simulation facility in some cases doing fever and temperature checks, and we're currently doing that with our medical student simulations, Uh, having people recognise that there will be requirements for physical distancing when they come and actually keeping records for things like contact tracing. Uh, The fourth point is about personal protective equipment and personal hygiene Uh, And I think this is really interesting because they do recognise right up the front about the impossibility of physical distancing in scenarios. So they start on this fourth point saying, well, obviously you have hand sanitizer, uh, and in many cases wearing masks, uh, in this case surgical masks. And in situations where more than one metre distance isn't possible, actually reflect the healthcare practice and be wearing PPE. And so I think that's certainly a, a, a measure beyond where we are at the moment, but that may well be, if you've got sufficient prevalence, the smart thing to do. Uh And then they get a bit more specific in their fifth point about managing this physical distance during the training activities, things like having smaller and more frequent simulations. 
uh, the sixth point, management of staff. Uh, you know, we do have a lot of things that happen around our simulations that don't actually require our in-person presence. So things like people working from home, having online meetings, uh, recognising that we're likely to have people absent due to need for self-isolating. Then they move on to maybe less sexy but probably very important points uh, related to cleaning and disinfection. And, and I think more broadly, Ben, these have been the... Many, in many cases, unsung heroes of the response so far is uh, cleaning things like training rooms, mannequins, as in parallel to what we're doing in clinical areas. Uh, then they say, just like any good uh, thing you want to set up, you should test it using a simulation. So do a simulation of your simulation and see if it works. And then there are other couple of points uh, related to management challenges, just saying, look, there probably are going to be changes in the costs of some things. Uh, it may be that budgets for masks and other personal protective equipment need to be taken into account. And then finally, talking about reviewing the emergency plans and procedures because uh, they might need to change given the uh, constraints now. So look, my thought was this is a lovely checklist. Who knows what really works? But I think to move towards some kind of consistent approach is a smart thing. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a nice, pragmatic, sensible paper with uh, sort of sound evidence being quoted for the recommendations that they've made. I think the challenge I, I have is not so, you know, it's kind of outside the role of the paper, but I guess there's there's another paper that leads to debate some of the ethics on, on depending on your community prevalence, what is the the ethics of opening a simulation service to business again. And I think that's really tricky. When, you know, locally we're having this tension between uh, not unnecessarily exposing people but also saying, well, what is the patient safety impact on me not teaching um, and and what is, the, what is the impact of us not running um, – education on recognizing the sick child or basic life support and uh, you know orientating our staff to all of our local guidelines etc it's it's a it's a complex and knotty problem it is and i think the uncertainty is what's critical here i mean if we said yeah the lockdowns for four weeks that's it then you're out but what we know is that is not the state of things and no one really knows uh, how long that's going to be because that's essential information needed to solve the problem that you, I think, very nicely described there. I think the other thing that brought up for me is no one wants to be the COVID police and you can have all these rules, but then when more people crowd into a room, who's the person that says, actually, we can't have this many people here and what's the response to it? And I think we are going to see some need for a bit of positive generosity in some of these situations because it's easy to... Uh, not be the COVID police and then the people who are really have to stick their neck out as it were as a social risk. Yeah I mean, and certainly in one of my courses recently there was this level of slight absurdity if you looked at it logically where we had this beautiful ring of well-spaced chairs for the debrief and then we'd throw everyone in together in tight space in the simulation room and then put them back on their beautifully well-spaced chairs and uh you know, one could argue it was a relatively pointless ritual that we weren't really addressing the underlying infection control need. Yeah, I think there's more to come in this space, but uh, thank you to the authors for that contribution. 
All right, now our next two papers are, well, three really, but all relate to thinking a little bit about simulated patient methodology and we're going to go through older simulated patients, younger simulated patients and simulated patients in uh, mental health simulations. So the first one in this trio is by Kathy Smith, uh, Lisa Sokolov, and my own friend, Namat Al-Saba. And this is titled Collaborative Framework for Working with Older Simulated Patients. And this is from BMJ Still in June 2020. And it's in their category of a short report. And uh, by way of background, they say, obviously, working with simulated patients has many advantages. Uh, but in fact, in most of our healthcare encounters now many of our patients are older so older simulated patients make sense for effective role portrayal but there are some important considerations uh, I guess this is less of a clinical impact for you Ben uh well you know what yeah not with regard to the specifics but it did have big impact on me oh really okay well mm -hmm. we'll come back to that after I present the framework so this is again uh expert opinion they haven't based this on any empirical work but I think it's the first time I've actually read it not so nicely put out so their method was uh, they described that their approach to creating this framework for working with older simulated patients as informed by the ASPE standards of best practice uh, for human role players in simulation and that actually is one of the most accessed uh, papers from advances in simulation and I'll put the link to that in our podcast notes and within their framework they've got five key values safety quality professionalism accountability and collaboration and then they say that there's five domains that they like to work through having a safe working environment thinking about case development training program management and professional development for our simulated patients and each of those has in turn principles and practices and then they go on to provide a little piece in there about just really articulating what are the changes in older adults in terms of physical and cognitive changes. And then they give a lovely, they've got two figures in there that describe this three-phase framework. And the first is know your older SP, which is focused a lot on recruitment and matching simulated patients to the role portrayals. The second phase is during the simulation, uh, which they describe as providing full support, proper briefing, anticipating the things that might come up, uh, and using cognitive aids in many cases if you've got older SPs who might uh, benefit from that. And then their final phase is post-simulation, uh, and I love this term, invest and integrate, so essentially reflect on how it went and what more might need to be done. So uh, I think the upshot is this is, again, very good practical advice on a topic that I'd like to think I had some intuitive understanding of but this is probably going to provide a little bit more structure to that uh, and you said it had an impact on you Ben. It did and I'm really glad you chose this one and I'm kind of annoyed because I wished I had used it for a journal club month because uh, I really love it and I think you know there's some personal bias here but I remember being so moved by Namat's passion about this topic and at Sim Health in 2019 hearing uh, in a debate, you know, and Namat's such a just warm and gentle person, but there was just this hint of beautifully protective rage uh, that she had about the misrepresentation of older patients in simulation. And, and so the sentence in the paper that really struck me was this where it said, first and foremost, 
uh, their presence, which is, you know, the presence of older simulated patients, in, in, ensures that older people are portrayed in an appropriate manner as opposed to casting a young person as an older adult and asking them to put on makeup or a wig, as well as compromising authenticity and learner engagement. Such an approach may also be perceived as being disrespectful and as leading to the creation of stigma and unhealthy bias. And, it, you know, it's kind of, you know, when I look back at some of, some of the photos that were shown of, of uh, how this has been approached, you know, it's kind of, it's educational old face. Uh, and it's, it's another example of the really well-intentioned but completely cringe-worthy simulation theatre that we've historically enacted in the sim lab in the name of education. And so it just really hit home to me that importance of authentic representation whenever possible um, and the potential negative training impacts of not doing this properly. Um, and I think that the paper is a wonderful synthesis of some pragmatic, sensible advice from a group of people who clearly have the street smarts to make these recommendations. And then they've combined that with some academic rigor by using uh, an existing um, validated, well, validated is probably not the right word, but um, uh, established uh, institutional expectations. So I think it's a really actionable paper and I love it for that. Mm. And I'm going to store away your phrase, educational old face. Uh, but it's so true. And it, and it underlines a theme that we've talked about a fair bit, which is the design choices and delivery choices that we make really do have uh, a powerful messaging. And we should probably be quite thoughtful about that uh, rather than, as you say, simply caricaturing um, the kind of role portrayal that we're looking for. Yeah. All right. Lovely. Uh, well, the next paper provides a nice contrast. It's done a little bit differently, but there's some similarities and some differences. So this is a paper published in Simulation in Healthcare in June 2020 by Bud et al., a group from the University of the Sunshine Coast, lots of local stuff. And the title of this paper is Engaging Children as SPs in Healthcare Education. And their background to writing this paper is very similar to the last one, Simulated Patients Are Good. Uh, and they really illustrate why, in theory and in practice, they might be good for paediatrics because there's actually quite a lot of nuance to the way uh, children present and, in particular, their behaviours. And this is especially hard to manifest if you're using a mannequin. Uh, but often children aren't engaged, is their point, because there are some pretty important ethical and practical considerations. Uh, ben, this really is your wheelhouse every day. Uh, you must have um, pondered a lot on what the balance and trade-offs are in this regard. I do, and I would have to say I'm a little bit of a cynic about paediatric SPs in resuscitation training specifically, um, and I think that is for a number of reasons. But I do think that there is value in engaging with children during your training, and I think a great example of a sim that featured a paediatric SP was Ian Summers' just demonstration with his son at uh, Don't Forget the Bubbles a couple of years ago where they rehearsed a plaster cast care and uh, a cast removal. Um, and to me, there's a lot of potential in that sort of sim where we practice things we do commonly and get feedback on it, um, you know, like taking an ENT exam or taking a child through their antinoxidation, etc. I'm torn a little in that I think you can get that experience relatively easily on the floor. Um, uh, but if I, you know, you know, I'm, I'm sure having a 
reflective space for that is really useful. And I can say one interesting personal experience for me was actually in reverse. So you're going to laugh. <laughs> you're going to laugh at this. But I was dealing with a heroin addict at uh, an adult hospital during my adult training after eight years of pediatrics. And at the end of the interaction, which was somewhat hostile on both ends, um, the NP who was working with me, Clancy, took me aside and he said, Ben, that that woman kept saying you were being uh, condescending and she was right. And he said, I think what's happening is you are engaging with these patients like you engage with your pediatric patients and it's coming across as condescending, which was really insightful, really honest, uh, timely feedback. And so I think that always makes me think about the way that as we transition between different types of patient care, we can bring with us communication strategies that are just so implicit and baked into the way we work that they don't work in that new environment. And so having that kind of space can be useful, but I think this is complex stuff. Oh, my God, you just dropped quite a bomb in there. That We could spend a whole podcast just deconstructing that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a spin-off. Yeah, I know. But, uh, wow, the fact that he said that to you, the fact that you listened to it. Oh, it was great. It was, the, it was some of the best, best feedback I've ever had. I was very appreciative. Yeah. Anyway, it would be easy just to blame the patient, but uh, I'm impressed as always that that's not been your take-home message. It's the reflective space, as you say, and the thing is simulation has been a way for us to create that, but it's probably not the only way. You're listening to Simulcast. I agree the nuances of paediatric presentations are the things to try and capture, and that is really hard to recreate in simulation, simulated patient or not. Anyway, back to this paper, what did they do? How did they present their thoughts? They did a literature review which essentially looked at uh, three main areas. What were the benefits of child-focused simulations, uh, including the benefits for practitioners, but then the next one they talked about was the actual benefits for patients and talked about this as being potentially a healthcare consumer engagement strategy, and I can see some benefit in that. Uh, then they talked their literature review then moved on to thinking about addressing the challenges, concerns about possible coercion, the risks of being traumatised and the difficulties of providing good training. And so then they described their approach at the University of the Sunshine Coast and they came up with their guideline, Table 2, talking about how do you make sure there are safe environments, how do you ensure that children can give useful feedback, how do you build the relationships between uh, the simulation providers, the children and their parents, and making sure, obviously, that you conform to any uh, rules, regulations and laws. So, again, Ben, I thought useful practical guidance if you are going to go there, but I think your point about uh, make sure you're thinking about the why and the what benefits before you jump in on the how, would that be what your uh, thoughts are? Yeah, I, I really admire the aspirations of these authors and the respect with which they represent those paediatric healthcare consumers. Uh, I don't see this sort of taking off in the same way that the SP community has in adults. And I think in terms of my concern about resuscitative training, it's that a huge component of paediatric emergency is this concept of recognising the sick child from the end of the bed in that their observations don't necessarily change until very, very late in the picture, um, particularly blood pressure. Uh, and so there's this gestalt 
medicine that is taught that is very much about recognizing the fact that when children are critically unwell, they move differently and their eye contact is different and their color is different. And those are the skills that we have to teach. And so I do worry about the negative training of teaching people to respond to um, a, a patient who is not moving at all like that in the same way on the basis that they have simulitis and they know that there has to be some deterioration. So I think that has to be very carefully considered. Yeah, I think this discordance is relevant and I even think about that with our adult patients when we're using a modality like I simulate where their blood pressure is low and their SATs are low and their heart rate says 120, but then if the practitioner appropriately puts their hand on the patient's pulse and it's only 70 we're training them to look at the monitor not the patient and I struggle with that even though I try and say this explicitly in the debrief I worry that we're engendering habits of being monitor focused rather than uh, patient focused and one of Namat's other excellent papers actually talks about that um, medical students recognition and response to clinical deterioration in simulated patient scenarios which I'll also put a link into all right, we might do our last uh, additional paper and we're still talking simulated patients but from a slightly different perspective again. So this is a paper by Naismith et al., a group from Canada, uh, published in Simulation in Healthcare in June 2020 and the title is Participant Perspectives on the Contributions of Physical, Psychological and Sociologic Fidelity to Learning in Interprofessional Mental Health Simulations. And by their description, they are exploring the relationship between fidelity and learning from the perspective of participants in interprofessional simulation courses. So again, Ben, just uh, even by way of background, I know and have been loosely involved with simulations that focus on mental health, but I feel like many of the challenges of role portrayal and the nuance here must be harder again, I think, than uh, the resuscitation situations we've been talking about. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I had a different thought, which was that I thought that experienced SPs um, could potentially bring a lot of nuance to a mental health sim uh, on the proviso that it, again, wasn't descending into caricature and it certainly looked like the course that's described in this paper uh, aims very much to avoid that. Uh, yes well as it turns out you are right if you read this paper and so I'll go into what they actually did and by way of background and one of the reasons I chose this paper is they spend a bit of time talking about fidelity and uh, this is much discussed in the simulation literature, as, in, as we know, and many people have rejected the term altogether. And I think largely because it was overused as a uh, meaning of complexity of a mannequin, which I don't think anyone accepts anymore. High fidelity simulation doesn't just mean your mannequin costs a lot of money. I think the term fidelity still has some utility but I think as this paper describes, you've really got to think what are you talking about when you use that term. So they described physical fidelity and look and feel of the simulation tech, the environment and everything else. So that I think is well understood, a sort of physical realism. Then they describe psychological fidelity, which is how much does this simulation replicate the task? 
and I think I might include that, the task and the team. But the example of that is something like if you don't provide the opportunity for nursing staff to document in a simulation, that is actually quite poor psychological fidelity because it's mixed up what their task would be. And then the third dimension that they talk about, which is less, actually the reference is from another source, is sociological fidelity. And I'm going to quote them here. The degree to which this addresses the reality of interprofessional care context and things like power, hierarchy and boundaries. Uh, What did you think of their description of those concepts, Ben? I'd written down the same quote. (laughs) So I really liked that as a new term for me and I felt that it enriched my understanding of these concepts around fidelity. Um, I would argue that from a categorization point of view, it's probably you could slot that into being a subset of, say, conceptual fidelity, but I think it's really useful uh, to highlight and name that subsection of how realistically um, the scenario replicates the underlying team dynamics and hierarchies and professional expectations in a sim. Yeah, and I think it also probably gives us some insights as to why we kind of just feel good about inside you sim and having native teams because I think that brings a lot of those nuances into both the simulations and the debriefs where we reflect on them because those power hierarchies, boundaries, uh, tacit elements of the team are brought with them into the sim. It's funny little aside here. In 2005, our simulation fellow at the time, who's now an ED consultant at the Royal Brisbane, we did this study with our junior doctors and we went, what do you find most real about the sims? And it was very interesting. Even way back then, they said, oh, well, not so much whether the mannequin's real, it's what we have to do. And so I think uh, these are not new concepts and many people smarter than me have written about it. So what did they actually do? They interviewed course participants uh, in there, and it's quite a long name for their course. It's their interprofessional simulation of patient experiences across the care continuum dash child and youth course. And I'm afraid the acronym needs some work, Ben. You might have to uh, work on that, the I-S-P-E-A-C-C-C-Y course. (laughs) I rolled off the tongue. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, it does sound like a great course, though. They it looks at it focuses on adolescents with um, concurrent physical and mental illness, and as they described, the background to this study was that they were trying to improve their fidelity, and they'd spent a lot of time thinking about the psychological fidelity and training of their simulated patients, but also the sociological fidelity and trying to replicate things like the role congruence. And so it does sound like it's an excellent course, and they essentially developed up some uh, questions to ask those course participants about those different uh, fidelity dimensions. And the results, well, uh, physical, they said, oh, that's okay, it's not that important, and I guess I've got some thoughts about why that is compared to say our trauma simulations um their psychological fidelity they said that sps were excellent and that that really helped to make the learning experience and on the sociological fidelity they actually had variable satisfaction with that and i suspect that's probably because that's quite hard to try and replicate all those things that they mention is that dimension of fidelity so my thought my take home from this was just 
really got to pay attention to those elements of psychological and sociological fidelity and that uh, I like their line. So this shows that the simulated patient costs and training are justified. Uh, what did you think, Ben? Um, I actually really liked that they just took their previous course feedback so seriously that they went, right, well, we're going to do a, a valid study of that feedback and work out what's really important, which I thought was really cool. Um, I do love a study that reinforces my own worldview, so that was handy. But I I think I'm probably thinking the same way you are about from a methods point of view that it's very unsurprising for this study that uh, there was an emphasis on psychological and sociological fidelity by the very nature of the sims and that the course is described I would love to take sounds like a really great full day series engaging the simulated mental health patients but in terms of that concept of functional task alignment it makes total sense to me that participants didn't notice that the room signs had changed as being particularly important because that wasn't particularly impactful on their ability to fulfill their tasks um and so particularly for a psychiatry sim where the challenges are really essentially internal and conceptual and, and communication based and interactional yeah yeah i agree i don't think this would fly in our trauma sim i don't think we could just put someone in a room you really do need to have the airway equipment in the right place and you need to have x-ray there and you need to have uh, other elements of that physical environment are more important so who'd have thought you actually just have to think about your simulation design and what it is that you're trying to achieve and what it is that you're trying to uh Focus on listening to Simulcast. All right. Well, that's it for extra papers. What about next month, Ben? All right. So next month, uh, we are going to geek out a little bit more and look at curricular design, which is something we haven't looked at in huge detail so far. So we are looking uh, at a paper by James Leung et al. from Advances, Advances in Simulation, and it's entitled Development of an In-Situ Simulation-Based Continuing Professional Development Curriculum in Pediatric Emergency Medicine. And I am hoping that in looking at this, we can use it as a little bit of a springboard to talk about curriculum design uh, and in particular uh you know, this is entirely self-motivated, is that I've always had a little bit of a beef or concern about the white whale of finding successful simulations for attendings and consultants who are often the most avoidant but also sometimes inflicted upon the most uh, ridiculously obscene and complex simulations in pursuit of a suitable challenge so i'll be interested to see whether whether month takes us well as someone who's moving into thinking about simulation as exploration and quality improvement i think i might have some strong views about this focus on the senior doctors but uh, i'm really looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> i look forward to that i think it's going to highlight this tension between educational focus and uh and improvement focus in a yeah. way that think is really important for us to talk about agreed so uh hopefully we'll have some uh good spiciness to the discussion all right well uh just a reminder go and join that discussion at www.simulationpodcast.com or follow ben simon on twitter because he will be encouraging you to do that and he will have links from his twitter feed to the discussion and uh also 
go onto the same website if you want to review the links from our discussions today and the links to the papers as well as any of the extra resources we have talked about. Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure as always. Absolutely. Too good. All right, this is Victoria Brazel and Ben Simon signing off for Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.